0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannon. Today, two, um, two lectionary tracts um, can be observed. Today is the 20th Sunday following the um, Feast of the Trinity, which comes the day after Pentecost, if uh, you didn't know. And so we've been numbering our Sundays based on Sundays following that uh, Feast of the Holy Trinity. And today is the 20th Sunday, and there's a lectionary reading for that. Today is also, however, the Feast of Christ the King, um, a later feast in the Church, but also with its own lectionary track and and readings and everything. And so we have been... um, praying the office of Christ the King, but our um, gospel text that I'm going to be looking at actually comes from the 20th Sunday after Trinity. But that doesn't mean that they have nothing to do with each other. There are actually several um, interesting points where the, the two are very much related. So, in the story that we get in the gospel today, Jesus is telling a parable, as he is wont to do, and he's likening the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to a wedding feast that the king throws for his son's wedding. And we're told that those who, I guess, had already had invitations sent in the mail and who should have RSVP'd but didn't get um, the special treatment of the king's servants being sent out to them to say, hey, you coming or what? The servants ignore the, I mean, the, the those invited ignore the servants of the king. They even treat them shamefully and kill them. I don't know. What in the world was so wrong with being invited to a wedding that it merited the, mil, the, the maltreatment and uh, killing of the servants of the king who was invited? But that's what happened. And uh, the king is angered by this and destroys the town and the village of all those who he had invited and instead sends his servants out to collect anybody you can possibly find on the roads, in the gutters, wherever you find someone, invite them to come. So the servants do this. Now... All of that rabble uh, it, it gets shuffled into the wedding feast. Um, they lay out the appetizers. Everyone's just sitting down. And I guess at some point the king comes in to see all of his guests, and there is a man not wearing a wedding garment. Now, we're not told that all of the rest of the guests had on wedding garments. In fact, they were dragged off the street and thrown into this wedding feast. So what a curious uh, thing that a man is found without a wedding garment, and then We read what happens to him after this. The king binds him and throws him into outer darkness. So, this parable needs a little unpacking. Obviously, it's not uh, a story of something that would probably really happen in um, sort of everyday life that uh, the the audience that Jesus is speaking to. This is a story that is uh, told in terms of things that happen in everyday life, but then it takes some strange twists and turns that uh, would have been shocking to them. And so, like many of Jesus' parables, it needs some interpretation. So, thankfully, we have 2,000 years of uh, very prayerful, committed, devoted people in the church who have spent their time interpreting this. So I'm just going to stand on the shoulders of giants and talk to you a little bit about what the consensus of most of them has been. Firstly, we see that... All that it took to be worthy of making it into the wedding feast itself is that you had accepted the invitation. There were some who had received invitations, but they had rejected those. And in the parable today, the king deems them unworthy to have attended. They were worthy enough to have merited an invitation, but apparently they weren't worthy enough to have attended because they rejected those invitations. It's not like on Facebook where... There's not much of a consequence if you accept, can't go, I think is the option now, or are interested. Um, you, you get put into a very distinctive moral category based on whether or not you accept the invitation. And so another round of invitations were sent out to people who didn't merit via their worthiness to have received the invitations, but they would be counted worthy to come if they just accepted the invitations. These aren't wealthy landowners or or rich, noble people in the city. These are whoever could be found at the last minute. Um, One of the interpretations of this, obviously, is um, as Jesus was wont to do in speaking of the mistreatment of the prophets of old and everything that God had done for for the people that he had called, and yet their representatives... um, so often rejected God. One of the interpretations of this is that Jesus is referring to the Hebrew people whom God had invited into his kingdom and whom they had uh, refused him over and over again. Uh, the, the leaders obviously um, mistreating and even killing the prophets, i.e., the servants of God who had been sent out. And so unworthy they are now who had received the invitation but rejected it. The word now goes out into all the Gentiles, all the heathens, all the pagans out in the world, and any who accept the invitation are now worthy, just like the Hebrews were, those special class, the special people, now everyone who accepts the invitation because it's gone out everywhere are worthy to come into the wedding feast. So that is one interpretation, and I think that is a um, good interpretation. It also means, though, that um, now that we are in the situation that we are in, where the majority of the Christians in the world are from a Gentile and not a Hebrew or Jewish lineage. Um, there seems to be sort of a, um, a, a new class, those who think that they, just by virtue of their pedigree, being born into a Christian family or whatever, are worthy, um, but have they actually accepted the invitation? And maybe those who, in our rapidly, um, increasingly post-Christian world, have never heard the gospel, have been brought up in families who have been irreligious or not church-going, and they, for the first time that they receive an invitation, if they accept it, are worthier than those who have grown up with it and haven't really done much with it at all. So the people who were invited second have now been brought into the wedding feast. Um, This feast, it might... Make us think of the, the wedding feast of the Lamb that we read about in the book of Revelation. The wedding feast of the Lamb, after all, um, this is a wedding feast being thrown by the king for his son. And so we, we think of the master of the feast, the king, as maybe God the Father, and the son whose wedding it is, um, being Christ, of course. And we are all gathered um, and invited to that feast, not just as, and this is where parables, you know, sort of, they're not a one to one analogous with reality. Uh, We can both be the guests at the feast and also the bride herself, the church being the bride. But um, the, the wedding feast in Revelation we see is an apocalyptic thing, an eschatological reality. It is the end of all things, the summation of all that has happened. Christ is victorious. He gathers his church to him. Thus commences the wedding feast of the Lamb. Well, we're talking about an ongoing timeline with people being gathered in and and invitations going out and being seated and all this stuff. So the way I like to think of this is, as everyone's walking in, this is sort of time as we know it, right? And everyone's slowly being seated, and maybe there are some appetizer courses out. Uh, We actually... Uh, we, we We know that um, there are heavenly graces that we partake of now; God is present with us, and so there's uh, you know there are foretastes of the feast that, that we have now, and so maybe everyone 's sitting down, and the appetizer courses are coming out. However, at some point in the feast, the king himself comes in to see the guests. I personally interpret that as the end of time. Now we have our eschatological moment now the king. Has come in to see the guest, the king has arrived. And so um, we've got this strange situation where we have people from all walks of life, all gathered together, some last minute, some having been seated and and munching on appetizers for a while. It's this chaotic situation, possibly, where the servants are coming and going and people are sitting and mingling and, and, and whatever. And all of a sudden, the king comes in. What does he find? He finds a man without a wedding garment. Who is this man without a wedding garment? I think he could be any of us. This man. He is approached by the king and he says, you aren't wearing what you should be wearing here. What is that about? Now, what is this wedding garment that he's missing? Almost all of the church fathers that I've read about Commenting on this um, on this story, agree that the wedding garment is not um, it's not baptism we don 't gain our wedding garment with our baptism, even though there is a lot of symbolizing uh, going on in, in in the baptismal service the The people being baptized are clothed in a pure white robe after they're baptized, representing purity and also um, a belonging in the church. so you could see how that would be uh, sort of a, a natural analog to say hey this Wedding garment should be the white robe of baptism symbolizing purity and belonging and everything. But they don't say that that's what it is. They don't say that the wedding garment is faith, that this man was found to be without faith, and so um, he doesn't deserve to be there. Uh, that that doesn't seem to be the case either. In fact, baptism and faith seem to be the things that make us worthy of coming in in the first place, right? You don't get in the door without baptism and faith. That's what makes you uh, be able to to enter in, not uh, not be thrown out immediately, but enter in, and so I think again, just that that worthiness of accepting the invitation, just saying yes, I'll come, I will enter into the feast, I will I will show up because I was invited. That implies our uh, entrance, our um, our baptism to to show that we've come in, and also. Some amount of faith, I assume, in in accepting the invitation and believing that there is a feast to be had. So, what is the wedding garment? Well, all of the church fathers and commentators throughout the centuries have agreed that the wedding garment is love. It's charity. It is um, not just not just a situation of your soul, but a fact that you have woven together for yourself. A garment of deeds, of love and charity. With deeds of love and kindness, love and kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes, as one of my favorite hymns uh, says. So, this garment isn't baptism, it isn't faith, it is the garment of love. And love, like a fabric, uh, the the fabric in a garment, love can be woven together to form um, to, to form a garment for us, and love is woven together in two directions, just like a fabric is. I work in an industry that deals with textiles and fabrics and stuff, and uh, so I, I know that there are, uh, you know, you can get a lot of different variations of, of thicknesses and, and uh, hand, that's a technical term for the feel of a, a garment fabric, um, of fabrics depending on how it's woven together, but generally all weaving happens in a standard way. You have a horizontal you know, uh, milling, fabric going this way, yarn going this way, and then you have a vertical where it's going vertically and horizontally and it's woven together. It's called the warp and the weft, another technical term. You'll forget about that, don't worry about it. Um, so love, like a garment, can be woven together with two different directions, love in two directions, horizontal and vertical love. What is horizontal and vertical love? Well. Jesus summarizes it for us, so he tells us what this is when uh, he summarizes the law and approves of other people summarizing the law in these terms, multiple places in the gospel. What is the summary of the law? Anybody? Loving God and loving your neighbor. This is the whole summation of the law that was given to the people of God, the Hebrews back in the day to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God is a vertical love. Loving your neighbor is a horizontal love. You see where I'm going now. So in order to weave a garment of love, we love in two directions. The scriptures show us how that love in two directions works. It also uses three different Greek words most of the time. There might be a fourth, but generally there's three that occur over and over again. Um, that we almost always translate just as love or charity. In the Latin, we only have um, amor and and caritas, I think, love and and charity. But the Greek gives us three distinct sort of forms of love. And so I'm going to briefly look at how those three forms of love work in both directions. Okay, so the three types of love in Greek are agape, eros, and phila, okay? Um, Agape would be love for another for their own sake. The desire to see the other prosper, to be fulfilled. You want good things for the beloved. That's what agape is. You want, it's pretty standard. You want to see them do well, to be happy, to be fulfilled. Eros is a second kind of love, and of course it's uh, the root of the word erotic, uh, a word that's been um, pretty flattened out to mean one thing in our day and age, but uh, in, the, in the Greek, eros was a powerful love. There, there was a lot of passion and emotion implied in this, but what it really meant, the root of eros, was the desire to be united to the beloved. You want to be with the beloved, just to be in their presence, to so just to be with them, to be made one with them. So if agape is the desire just to see the good of the other, whether or not you're with them, eros is a desire to be with the beloved, to be united. And then the last is phila. And this is, the, this is where we get uh, you know, the, uh, um, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phila is a friendly love. It's a love that uh, binds us in a bond of friendship. And this uh, friendship with someone, the love that you have for a friend, usually is uh, because your, your partner is in something. Friends, friends have similar um, interests and, and, and loves and hobbies. And so this um, brotherly love, this love of friends, is, um, implies another object, of another aim, another action, so that you share together in your actions and aims. Um, it's 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 a it's a love of um, being co-workers, almost. And so, um, whereas agape wants the good of the beloved, eros desires union with the beloved. Phila desires to work with, to be on equal standing with, to be partners with the beloved. If that makes sense, um, agape can be at a distance. You want you want the good. Uh, eros is a is a union. You're face to face. Philia turns you both in the same direction so that you are united in your aims. Does that, that make sense? Okay. So, now that we have these three loves, the two directions, how do these work out? Well, of course, in agape, a love for... Uh, we'll start with horizontal. Um, we, we know how we can want the goodness of someone else. That's pretty obvious. Um, and, and so, socially, with our neighbors, agape should be something that we can work to attain to. We can at least try to want the good of someone else, right? Well, how do we want the good of God? God is good. In loving God with agape, what we want is to see God fulfilled with our worship. We know that God wants our worship. And it's the only thing we can offer to him. Um, and so that's what we offer to him, our worship. That's how we love God with agape is by worshiping him simply. Eros, of course, to be united with uh, someone else. Um, generally, this is going to be you know, between... Uh, romantic lovers, spouses, and, and, and things like that. Uh, that's that's the, the desire to be united with the beloved. But we can even have erotic love for God in that we desire to be united with God, that we can attain to a union with God, not just wanting God to accept our worship, but wanting God to invite us up into himself so that we can be with God. It's a rapturous desire to be united with God. And then, Ophelia, friendship. Of course, we all know what it feels like to work alongside someone, to share our uh, desires and goals and to work together. Uh, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world when you find someone that you really click with and you work together on a project and you're both fulfilled. That's just, that's a, it's a wonderful thing. Some people have working relationships like that, and that's, that's a terrific thing. But, this is also something we can experience with God. Philia, being friends with God, this is what Jesus said to his disciples, you're no longer my servants. I now call you friends. You are my friends. What's the difference in servants and friends? Servants don't know the business of the master. Friends know what the master is doing. Servants just obey. Friends work with the master. This is what makes us co-workers with God. If we have the love of phila, brotherly friendship love with God, it means that we have the same aims and desires as God. What God sees what God wants to see accomplished in the world, so do we. Amazing. We want the same things. That's a great place to be with God when you realize that you actually want the same thing that God wants. And so these are the the ways that we love both neighbor and God. And these aren't just feelings either. All of this implies action. Uh, St. James said, faith without action is dead. Uh, love without action is dead in the immortal words of the great music group d c talk love is a verb. so we weave a garment of love through our actions, and this is what uh, this is what creates our wedding garment. This is how we belong in this great feast of the king is having woven a garment of love. I know this. This sounds, oh, I don't know, works righteousness comes to mind. This idea that, that we do something to earn uh, belonging in the kingdom of heaven. But hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't give this parable. This is, uh, this is Jesus. We could do nothing to earn entrance into the kingdom of God. We didn't. No one sneaks into this. You have to be invited. And at first, not everyone was invited. Some were invited, and they rejected the invitation, and then everyone was invited. And so everyone who comes in is only there by virtue of having an invitation. We can't earn our way into the feast of the kingdom of God. But once we're in there, clearly, we need to be wearing the right thing. And the right thing is the wedding garment, woven out of our deeds of love and mercy and charity toward those around us and our worship worship. Union and co-working with God. So, do we have those or not? Do we have our wedding garments? When the feast, uh, when the king walks into the feast and he looks at us, are we wearing wedding garments? That's a hard question. That's a really tough question. Um, I don't know that any of us can know for sure if our wedding garment is on or not, if it's complete, if, if it's, you know, half hanging off of us, if, if it's still being woven from the ground up and, and we've got, you know, yay much covered or so. I don't know. I don't know. We don't see any indication that the man realized before the king walked in that he wasn't wearing a wedding garment. Uh, you know, it's not like he was hiding in the corner. He was probably seated there at the table eating his appetizers. When the king walks in and tells him, Why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? I think this idea of wearing a garment or not um, is, is another example of what I call this uncomfortable binary that we see in the Gospels a lot. Jesus regularly compares people to sheep and goats, one or the other. They go one direction or the other direction. He compares people to good or bad trees. Either they give good fruit or they don't. The good ones, they stay around. The bad ones, they get cut down and thrown into the fire. The goats go off into the left in the darkness. The sheep go into the uh, to the right of the kingdom of God. There's this binary that Jesus uh, has a habit of using that is just harsh. It's, it's very uncomfortable to, to deal with. But then again, there are other indications uh, that that binary can be I don't know. maybe a little more subtle than, than we initially thought because there's this parable where there appears to be a bad tree but there's a servant who says, eh, actually, can I, can I take another year or so and dig around it and lay some fertilizer and see if, see if this can be revived and see if this can be a good tree? Maybe these binaries are what we look like at the end of the story. But before the end of the story, there's a there's, there's chance for bad trees to become good, for goat to become sheeps, for those without wedding garments to actually take the time to weave one. So I think when the king walks in at the end of the age and shows the man for what he is, that's, that's the point where, well, there it is. Now, now, now the judgment is occurring. This confrontation of the man, of all of us, is apocalyptic. It is eschatological. It's at the end of all things. And the king addresses him. He says, friend. He doesn't say, you there. He says, friend. Because God loves us. It doesn't matter what we're wearing. It doesn't matter if we're sheep or we're goats. It doesn't matter if we're good or bad trees. God loves us. He wants the best for us. He wants us to be good trees. He wants us to be sheep. He wants us to be wearing beautiful garments. And so, whatever the case, we will be addressed as friend because of all the strange, confusing, difficult things that we find throughout the scriptures, one thing is constant and that we always know. God is love. God is love. That's why our garment is woven out of that very love. It's the thread that the master lends us so that we can weave it together. Any love we have comes from God himself because that is his nature. God is love. However, If we are shown to not be wearing a garment, um, we won't have an answer for ourselves. At the time, it will be utterly clear. The master will say, where's your garment? We'll look down and we won't be wearing one. There's no chance to defend ourselves saying, well, I mean, I I, I could have a garment or I might have had a garment or whatever. You have or you have not a garment at at the end of the day. This judgment, I think, is the reason it's apocalyptic is because it's not that God makes us not have a garment or God uh, declares us fictitiously to have a garment or not. All that God will do is show us whether or not we are wearing a garment. And if we're revealed not to have a garment, we'll see that our hands that had not served others, that hadn't worked love out in actions will have been bound all along by our own wills, and now they're being bound against our will. That our feet that had refused to go to those who are sick and needy and visit those who needed visiting, and those feet that had not put love into action, will have been bound all along by our own wills, and now we're seeing that they're bound against our will. And that our eyes that refuse to see the the value of those around us, deserving our love and our charity and our goodness and our actions, those eyes that had been blind to that all along by our own will will now be thrown into outer darkness against our will. And on that day, all that has been the case all along will be revealed to be the case. And we will be bound and thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Once again, Jesus, who we know to be love, ends his parable in a really disturbing way. A way that I won't pretend to have a good or easy answer for. I don't know how to interpret this in any other way than saying, clearly, this ends with a warning of danger. There's a potential for something really nasty at the end of this. We don't see that this potential nasty ending is the end of the story what we see is that it's part of the story okay he doesn't end it with the end and they stayed there forever and those in the wedding feast were happy ever after he just ends the story what does that mean well what it means is we have to take what is included in the story seriously it may or may not be fruitful it's probably not going to be very fruitful to spend a lot of time philosophizing about the nature of hell and salvation and all the rest of it. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't pre- uh, present us with a, a, an essay or a, you know, a, a, a metaphysics of Hades. He gives us a story. And this is all that I'm going to repeat today because this is the story and this is where it ends. Outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth whatever they indicate and symbolize in reality, cannot be good. I don't know what that means, but it's not good. All that we have to do to avoid that is, as the uh, faithful um, interpreters of Scripture throughout the centuries in our tradition have told us, is be wearing a garment made of love. Love doesn't have to be something that we are frantically weaving together so that we don't get thrown out into the darkness. That's not what love is. That's not a motivation for loving other people. What motivates the weaving of our garment is emulation of the king who invited us to a sumptuous feast at no cost. That's what love is about. Love invites strangers in the ditch into a feast at no cost. Love invites all those who had not only not been worthy, but had not even heard of a feast going on. Love sends its servants out to find people wherever they are. That is what love is, and that is what weaves our garments. Not, not a response to fear of, of something, but a response to love. Love engenders love. Love gives birth to love. God gives us our very existence, and he also gives us our love. He gives us the ability to act on that love with our actions. So this is what it means to weave a wedding garment for ourselves. This is how we love God and love our neighbors, just in response to the love that we've already been given. So the king who invited everyone in to the feast, uh, the wedding feast for his son, we know that this king is full of love. And we also know that that son... um, who is marrying his bride, will also be given the crown of the king and share in with that crown. So to mix metaphors, I'm just going to try to tie this into the feast of Christ the King that we're also on today. If we are in the wedding feast and we belong and we're wearing our garment, in that strange um, apocalyptic scenario and situation, we'll find that as we're feasting, we also realize that we are the bride that we become those united in Eros to the son of the king who is himself the king. Love for God and love for others makes us belong in a wedding feast where we one day will no longer just be guests, but will be the bride herself who is united with that God who loved us enough not just to invite us, but to marry us, to give us union with him. This is the extent of the love of God it keeps getting wilder and wilder and crazier and crazier and more and more extreme. First outcasts, then guests, then the bride herself. And then when we're one flesh with the God of all of creation, I, I can't even imagine what kind of a reward that is for those of us who had been laying in a ditch with no hope, which is what we are without God. So in response to that wild and crazy love, I hope that we will take a little bit of time to give some thought to how we put our love for God and love for others into action. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and Reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox Mission in Atlanta, Georgia.